Yo, what's up? It's your girl, Father Longlegs, Daddy T. You know me, um, Teresa Lee. This is You Can Tell Me Anything. Yes, that's right. We are back, sort of. This is a special episode. I'm going to keep the intro short, and I actually mean it. I know I like to talk a lot. I imagine if you're listening, you sort of like my voice, um, but really, I will keep it short. This is not helping. Okay. <laughs> it's Wushu's, my dog. I don't know if you can hear him. Probably not, but I paused because he's barking in the background, and today is his um, third adoption anniversary okay real quick I really do want to introduce this episode because it is a special one I've been holding off on releasing I have some banked episodes with some really great guests that we recorded pre the protest and a lot has been going on I've been spending a lot of time if you follow me researching bots AI big data do you say big data tomato tomato data data doesn't matter when we're all computers it won't matter And also, um, that led me down a really weird hole of the radical right and how they get their funding. Um, So, that led me to this episode. Um, I sit down with Ann Nelson, who wrote this amazing book called Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. She's a journalist, a playwright, a screenwriter. I mean, her plays were made into a movie with Sigourney Weaver. She, she's done a lot. Um, she's really cool. And I think, believe a professor at Columbia. And most of all, she agreed to talk to me when I reached out to her out of the blue, because I've been digging into what I thought was just a wild conspiracy and opened a lot of doors to information online. And it led me to her book. So I reached out to her on Twitter. She agreed to talk to me because I had so many questions. And then she so graciously agreed to talk to me on this podcast because I realized what she would explain to me was probably very helpful for other people to hear. And even though I've spent countless hours really trying to learn more about this world and I barely have touched the tip of the iceberg, um, I figured at some point I would like to bring people in and um, share it with you. And I believe all this info is already out there, but it's obviously not dripped into my network quite yet. So we try to break it down in ways. I ask a lot of questions. Forgive me if I sound dumb, but I try to ask as freely as I can because I imagine some of you may have questions too. So I hope you enjoy this. Definitely go check out our book if any of this interests you. Um, And if you can't, you know, if you're not patient enough to read a whole book, she also is on Twitter at A Nelson A. Do follow her. Um, She's still writing uh, articles as well and tweeting short form information so um, I definitely recommend that if you're more interested in following along with this part of the world and news um, as you should and also definitely go check out um, her latest article in the Daily Beast all about Trump's uh, 2020 campaign app which uses a lot of data mining and she gets into that at the end we do sort of plug all of this but I wanted to say it up top I'm also going to include links in the footnotes um, and in the description so if you guys want to follow some more information and then from there you can message me if you want to hear more because there's a lot more but I would say this is a quick introduction all right I hope you guys enjoy if you enjoy this episode and you want more informative stuff like this let me know Um, I have more people I'm talking to and I'd love to share it with you Um, Follow me at Tell Me Anything Pod. Follow or personally at Larissa T. You can also email me, tell me anything pod at gmail.com. All right, bye. You can tell her, you can tell her anything. She's a real girl.
Yeah, because I think this is super interesting and, and I'm sure stuff will come up that I'm like, oh, I want to talk about this. Uh, so let me let me introduce you real quick. Okay, this who I have on the phone. Uh, this is a little bit insane that I am talking to you because, like I said, I'm a comedian who usually just sometimes posts butt pictures and likes to make jokes. And I went down a hole uh, online looking up Trump bots and found Ann Nelson's book, who I have on the phone. And she's a very lovely author, journalist, uh, and honestly, like, truth teller? I don't know. How would you describe yourself? And Welcome to uh, welcome to my this is my podcast slash conversations with me. Oh, thanks so much. <laughs> uh, and yeah, Teresa, it is kind of hard to describe me, um, but yeah, I think I, I'd, I'd love to embrace the truth teller <laughs> label because I, I I really really try. And my career's been a little crazy. I was a war correspondent when I was twenty five in El Salvador and Guatemala. Uh, had a little stint with combat photography and gave that up quickly. Um, and then I went into human rights work and I was like one of the first staff members for Human Rights Watch, which is an amazing organization. And then I was the director of the Committee to Protect Journalists, to protect journalists who need it more than ever. Oh, and you're a playwright. Um, and, and I should say the book that um, I found is called Shadow Network, Media Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. So um, definitely you guys should go get that book. It, she really breaks it down very well. Oh, yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, and so, you know, when I was in college, I thought I was going to be in theater and film and music. And I, I just decided that, that the world would probably benefit more from me doing this work. So I, I kind of funnel all of my experience into this. And with, with Shadow Network, you know, 2016 election happened, and I, I didn't, I was like everybody else in, in New York City who read the New York Times. It was like, no, Trump's going to lose. He's not a serious candidate. And then you woke up in the morning and it was like a hangover. It was like, what the hell? Um, and so I kind of dropped everything else I was doing and I wrote this book. And it's like, well, how did, he, how did they do this? How did this work? And I had to kind of do this deep dive into how the Electoral College and the swing states work and then how fundamentalist organizations misled lots of people, millions of people in the swing states to get them to vote against their own interests. Mm -hmm. And it came out as Shadow Network. And it's really, like all of my work, it's really heavily researched and documented. Uh, so anybody who wants to know where I got this or that information can find it. Uh, and I just hope people pay attention to it before November. Yeah, that's the thing is, um, in... in I, I tell people as uh, as information comes out that seems unbelievable um, that it's always good to try to prove yourself wrong before you prove yourself right. But that's kind of how I found you is I didn't really want to believe it. And I kept trying to find a reason why this wasn't true. And then it led me to um, your book. So it, it is very well researched. And, you know, obviously in this day and age, everybody's doubting each other. But I would say trust your gut when it comes to information. Um, when you see all of it versus when someone tries to limit it, it tends to be like, oh, okay, that's the truth. Um, yeah, but, but also, you know, like you can have professional journalism and people with a background and a track record in professional journalism who have sourcing, you know, and, and say, well, if you don't believe me, check my sources and I'll answer for it rather than just, it's so because I said so, yeah. right? And there's a big difference. And, you know, Shadow Network talks a little bit about 
how journalism actually works. You know, you you have editors, you have lawyers, you have <laughs> people who, who go over it and, and try to hold you accountable. Yeah, well, so what surprised me so much when I started looking into, um, just, I guess, quick background is I started looking up into Hillsdale College, which most of you probably haven't heard of, but it's a it's a small conservative college that is very closely tied to Trump and funnels a lot of money into um, policies that, you know, support the extreme radical right. And that's sort of how I found Anne. But I, uh, I, I didn't find a lot of mainstream media articles breaking it down. So that's how I found your book. But I guess for people who don't know what we're talking about, can you summarize a little bit? Um, just like overall, what are we talking about when we talk about Council for National Policy? Yeah, well, you take it back to the 60s, and the Supreme Court made these decisions that advanced civil rights for African Americans, they advanced rights for women, and that gradually opened up a whole set of, of new political and civil rights for immigrants, and eventually for LGBTQ people, and there was a backlash. And every time you have, uh, you know, progress, you're going to get a backlash. And a lot of this happened in the South, where these evangelists like Jerry Falwell were saying, oh, well, we believe in segregation, um, we have segregated schools, and we want to keep them as tax-exempt institutions, and so we need to affect the political process in a way that we can get control. And we're not going to win the popular vote, because we're in the South, we're a national minority, so we have to design a strategy where we can use the weaknesses of the electoral process mm -hmm. uh, in the United States to take power. And they started working on it in 1981. They formed the Council for National Policy, and they brought in some big money people, like the DeVos family from Michigan, where which Betsy DeVos is a member of. Mm -hmm. And they brought in oil barons who wanted no environmental regulations anywhere and the Koch they brothers i think eliminate. people uh, are well, aware the of that they got involved as well connected to them later on but you had other oil interests from the very beginning and then you had these strategists these political strategists who just basically sat in their smoke-filled rooms and said we want to take over and we have to figure out how to manipulate the system to do it and they took 40 years and 2016 their ha their plans came to fruition mm-hmm and it's it's interesting to know because um, you break this down in your book, but just to summarize for people who haven't read it, the the way that Trump came to power, a lot of us uh, look at him as a figurehead to hate because he's so easy to hate. But in your book, you talk about how he wasn't their first choice, but once he became the nominee, they pivoted and put all in on him. And um, they, at first they said, he's not a man of God, he's an instrument of God. So... That really struck a chord with me because it's not about arguing ideals and values with um, this powerful funding group. It's about they just want to stay in power and they'll do that whether it compromises their values or not. So to me, it's not about like the argument of religious freedom when someone's taking um, means like that, if that makes sense. Like I'm happy to have social conversations with people who disagree with me, but something feels off about the way Trump came to power because it is off, because there was, you know, a lot of uh, compromises made. Yeah, and, and you have to realize that when these people talk about religious freedom, what they're talking about is the ability to impose their religion 
on everybody else. It's freedom for them, but not the other people. So, for example, you know, uh, fine, if, if you're Christian, that's great. But is it fair to go to the county courthouse and make that public space a Christian space when that is not available to the members of the community who are Jewish and Muslim and Buddhist and atheist? Uh, the public space should be the public space, and the religious space can be the religious space. That's, that's how our country has developed increasingly over the 20th century. But the problem gets bigger when they want to impose their views on everyone else in addition. So they believe that, that transsexuals uh, should not exist. And so they want to deprive them of medical services and fundamental political and civil rights. And they've been advancing that law on a state level. So it becomes really, really problematic uh, now, their idea of Trump was, as you say, they, they started out saying, well, he's not really one of us. And that was true. He wasn't of their culture. He wasn't of their belief system. It was a question of what they call transactional politics. They said, all right, here's our, here's our shopping list. We want to name your judges. We want to be your religious advisory council. Mm -hmm. We want you to take our guy, Mike Pence, as vice president. And so if you give us everything on our list, we'll throw our money and our ground troops and, and our strategists behind your campaign. And that's what happened. And Trump has delivered. He has delivered item by item. So, for example, one of the leading members of the Council for National Policy wrote the elements of the Republican convention platform in 2016 Rolling back rights for LGBTQ people. Uh, what happens when Trump takes office? Mm -hmm. Trans people are banned from military service, mm -hmm. even though the Pentagon objected to it. So they've been getting their shopping list filled the last four years, and they're going to fight like the devil to keep Trump in office for the next term. Yeah, and one of the um, tactics they use, and you describe it really well, this this web of, um, it's almost, I call it a propaganda machine, but this this network that isn't just like on the liberal media where we, you know, try to expose the truth, which has its problems too, but this network is sort of top-down fed messaging that is often uh, based on false facts, um, and then they're spread throughout like a syndicated network of radio hosts of sort of like extreme broadcasts. Uh, I guess people are more familiar with One American Network, Tommy Loren, Tucker Carlson sort of fall into that network, uh, as well as pastors and church leaders are given messaging to tell their congregation. And it's fed top down, and it includes misinformation like, you know, fake numbers of um, gay people molesting children or abortions being done to fetuses that are, you know, fully formed. And so it's very Absolutely. effective. Be just, well, because it's fake information. Yeah. And so I understand having an argument about pro-life and pro-choice with someone who believes in it. But to then use fake information feels very dangerous and misleading because it's a total lie. Absolutely. And they create these slogans. And for example, one of them is partial birth abortion. Mm. And it is not a medical term. It's something that they made up because it, it, it stimulates people's emotional response. It sounds so horrible and horrific. And who would be 
in favor of that? <laughs> well, yeah, because it doesn't exist. Yeah. And the other, another one of them is abortion on demand up until the day of birth. <sighs> and again, uh, what that means in reality is if you have really severe birth defects that mean the death of a child or the death of the mother, in a tiny, 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 tiny fraction of cases, that might happen for humane reasons, mm-hmm. you know? But it's not a practice. It's not a policy. It's not. It's not. Right. It's and not like they, they want to go and kill it. babies, which is how they were phrasing it. Oh, it, yeah. it almost makes me realize the gun gun debate has been pushed um, in a way to because you talk about how they appropriated or kind of co-opted the NRA and to me I'm you know I'm, I guess I'm a radical in their eyes but I I tend to favor gun control but it's hard to have that conversation with the co-opted NRA because they really want the liberals who are not going to be persuaded at all to just be anti all guns versus gun control so um, to me it's almost like the abortion talk could be flipped around on them, right? It's like, oh, well, we don't kill babies. You know, I don't know. I mean, they use that kind of thing, like guns don't kill people, people kill people. And just because it's legal doesn't mean people are going to kill people with guns. Although I would argue it makes it highly likely. With abortions, just because they're legal doesn't mean now we're all going to go out and get abortions. You know, uh, Teresa, the facts are that you have had historically more abortions, including more illegal abortions under Republican leaders. And when the Obama administration supported Planned Parenthood and and birth control measures and and health measures for women, the number of abortions in the United States went down drastically. Look at the numbers. Right. And so I, I don't think abortion is a great thing. I personally know people where an abortion saves their lives, mm-hmm. right? So that has to be between a woman and a doctor. And the more women have control over their own bodies, the fewer abortions you're going to have. And yes. the historical record supports that. Yeah. So it's like the, even their rhetoric is incorrect. Um, and and it's I wanted to point out an interesting thing because I think most of my audience is liberal and, you know, cares about human rights. But I found something interesting about myself when I listened to your book, because I, you know, as maybe a defense mechanism have in the past made fun of the idea of Christianity and Christians who want to convert me. And I know a lot of Christians. In fact, a lot of the guests on this podcast who are comedians, but a lot of them are um, have left sort of evangelical or very strict religious backgrounds and, and found comedy. And I used to think, oh, we all agree that the church is bad. But what I realized is the extreme right wanted to push moderates out of the picture so that they wouldn't sway their agenda. And now what I have is a lot of friends who have similar values as me that I would say are quote unquote Christian or, you know, faithful values, whether you're Christian or, you know, Jewish or whatever faith you are, they tend to be the, the positives of having faith. And we share those values. But we don't like I think the politics of church. Well, yeah. And, and uh, you know, I, I think you're so right about that. And one of their tactics is to divide America mm-hmm. and to push people into polarized corners. Of course, there are, you know, terrific evangelicals and fundamentalists who've done wonderful good in the world. There are 
you know, bad apples in every grouping of humanity. Um, and and so to, to turn Americans against each other is really a terrible thing. And our whole political system is based on the idea that we can we can negotiate our future with mutual respect. Okay, I'm a Republican, you're a Democrat, I disagree with you, but we live together in peace and we work things out. That's how it's supposed to be. What these people do is say Democrats are demons, right? Yeah. And, I mean, I've heard them say, Beto O'Rourke is the son of Satan. <sighs> that's not political discourse. That's, <laughs> that's, that's bias. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, my, my, <laughs> what I always say is, oh, how do you fact check that? <laughs> right. Let's call God and let's ask him. <laughs> what does he say? Well, no, you got to call Satan and get it. <laughs> right, right. Hey, can I call your references? Is He's saying he's your son. Um, are you his dad? Um, well, the other yeah. thing is with all this power and all this money, because they really, you're saying like, I mean, mil- billions, right, are being thrown into these policy campaigns. Um I mean, just um, I'd say hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions. Um, And with all that power and all that money, it's still not a sure thing. Like they're still so angry. So then I wonder there. I I infer because I'm hopeful. That means there's hope, because if they wanted to do this in the 80s and it's been so long, yes, they're succeeding ish, but there must be a democratic equivalent. Right. Or are they just so powerful and we're just so disconnected right now that we have to start from zero. Teresa, the answer is that they've been a lot more organized and strategic and motivated. Because I can't tell you how many young people I talk to who say they don't vote. Hmm. Or that they can't vote for a Democrat because of this and that, Mm -hmm. which means that their vote is effectively going to the radical right. Yes. Because that's how it shakes out. And so they're not being strategic. They're being uh, uninformed. So we've got a little over 130 days until November. Hmm. These people are going to be blanketing America, blanketing the swing states. Swing states, to remind your audience, are three states in the north, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, and three states in the south, North Carolina, Florida, and Arizona. And... Those states, no matter how high Biden's popular vote goes, if he loses all of those swing states, he could still lose the Electoral College. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. He, could, he could win the popular vote by as many as 5 to 10 million and still lose the Electoral College. So maybe 100,000 people scattered among those states are going to settle the future of the oh, United States. Wow. <laughs> and when you talk in terms of the the environmental policies, the future of the planet, because mm-hmm. there's a climate crisis going on, guys. And this administration is not going to do a single thing to help, and it's going to do a lot to make it worse. That's the reality. So yeah. there's just so much at stake. Now, it's great to vote, but guess what? Uh, if your audience happens to be in California, <laughs> California is going to go Democrat. So their vote's not going to count very much. Uh, it's the swing states that are going to make the difference. And if they want to see more information about this, they can look at the University of Virginia's crystal ball, which mm. does analyses of, of the, the, the election coming up. Well, so and you, There's a lot people can do. 
Yeah. Well, and you talk about data, too, because that's the other thing I, I think people aren't realizing is voting is important, but it's also important to understand just how advanced the technology has come. It's I, I kind of use the metaphor as like once fire is invented, we can't uninvent fire and it actually could do a lot of good for society. But we all need to know that it exists and the harm it can do. And I think people don't realize with um, data. I mean, I don't even know the proper it's like the data targeting They've been mining data and targeting what they call persuadables with false information. So it's one thing if you target someone with real information that they could use, but they're trying to dissuade people who wouldn't vote for them away from voting and then persuade people with false information to vote for them. So that's also you talk about that a little bit better. But um, what do they say? They say uh, we don't want everyone to vote. We just want the people who would vote for us to vote. Yeah, and, and that is a, a basic tactic. Um, and, you know, I, I really intentionally, in the book, call it data wars, mm. because really the first advance was with the Obama campaign in 2008. Mm-hmm. They were the first to use social media in an effective way, and that's when the Koch brothers jumped into the picture with both feet, because Obama started passing environmental regulations that cut into the Koch brothers' profits. Right. And they didn't care if people had issues with toxic waste dumps and and so on. They wanted their profits uninterrupted, so they invested in a data platform, and and it really took off on the Republican side. The Democrats are playing catch-up ball now, and they've got some interesting and effective measures, but they have a lot of ground to cover quickly. Uh, And so, you know... We're in this period in in digital technology that's like the Wild West. There are all of these things that are developed in terms of something called relational organizing, where they use your contacts. Both Democrats and Republicans will will ask for your contacts and then try to use your connections to to build out their votes. My opinion is that some of it really needs to be regulated, but Mm -hmm. none of that's going to happen before November. So you just have to kind of work with the existing structure until November, and then we hope that sensible people will sit down and say, how should this really work? I think there's something promising, which is that Twitter and more recently Facebook are starting to do more fact-checking of posts, including for, for some of Trump's posts. Right. So I mean, it's so top-down. Huh? Well, I was going to say, what's scary is it's so top-down, because I... I know the answer wouldn't be to censor fake news, but I would hope that, you know, typically in the past, these are marginalized groups that, you know, spew conspiracies that most of us can discern. But when it's that close to, you know, it's the president retweeting clearly false news, it becomes a a lot muddier to discern the difference. Well, and I think that what's happened is that our whole, our society's whole structure of information has changed. So, you know, we've got the First Amendment and freedom of speech, which means that you can go on the corner and shout that Satan is taking over America, and it's legal to do that. You don't do that in a news story in a professional news organization, Mm -hmm. because there are professional uh, procedures, you know, so that there's reporting and fact and and, and editing and, and legal and so on. And we've had this huge world that's opened up between those two things on, mm-hmm. on social media. 
So it's not exactly the freedom of speech thing where you can say Satan is taking over America if you're like an official person, but it's also not vetted the way the New York Times is. Right. Um, and, and, you know, we're just going to have to work that out as a society because it's happened faster than, than we've been able to, to deal with it. And you talk about the media desert, which I found really interesting because I think I've only lived on coast and, you know, I'm, I'm a first generation Asian American. So I have a, you know, very specific experience that to me, a lot of my peers can relate to, but a lot of uh, people in the media desert, you call it a media desert, sort of, um, most of the big media outlets happen in the coastal cities. So then there's a lack of local news coverage, which was then filled in by this more extreme right broadcast network. And it made me realize like, I didn't even consider that, you know, I had a limited view, truly, you know, going to NYU, I really just believed I was on the right side of history. But I didn't consider how people might feel being left behind. And the idea isn't to push them away, but it's to bridge that divide through our common uh, values. And then then the people who are trying to manipulate that become way more apparent when they're not on board with the, you know, the good values. But I think we sort of miss that. And I, I like how you describe it because you really take us through the timeline. I'm kind of butchering it by summarizing it. But um, yeah, I, I, how this could have happened. There was a need. It's not just hate spurned. There was a need for something that we didn't address. Yeah, absolutely. And I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma and we had a newspaper. And, you know, in, in my day, you had to read the newspaper to get find out which grocery stores had a sale on and what the high school football team did, the, you know, on Friday night. And then you got the national news with it, too, from the Associated Press and other professional news organizations. And then the local staff who reported on state and local news. And, you know, I'm sure most people read it for the football scores, but you still... <laughs> That was, that was your base for a conversation. Mm-hmm. And all over middle America, because of the technological revolution and online advertising, those newspapers have been dying off in record numbers. But even in cities, I mean, you have the Los Angeles Times, which has a great, great legacy as a newspaper, but it's had a very troubled time in recent years. It's mm-hmm. been sold and sold again and really struggle to survive because of these same advertising issues. So it's all right. We don't have to have newspapers printed on paper, but we have to have some system that compensates professional news gatherers Mm -hmm. to report the news and publish credible information, or our democracy will totally fall apart. Yeah, that's my next fear that I I keep saying, like, hopefully it doesn't happen, but a lot of things... I've been uh, calling as watch out for this have happened. Um, And the next fear of controlling a, you know, a society is to limit information. So right now we have internet and yes, there's misinformation, but at least I can look up. But I'm, if, if we get to that point where we're limited to not being able to access it, that's when I would really, I mean, I'm already sounding the alarm bells, but I guess for people who haven't (laughs) heard the alarm bells, that's when I would be very concerned. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. But I I do want to say, you know, my last book, Suzanne's Children, was about this woman in her 30s, and she was an unhappily married woman with two little kids, and the Nazis invade Paris, where she lives, and start, after a while, start deporting Jews to Auschwitz. 
Hmm. And she organized a network that rescued 500 Jewish children from deportation. Wow. She had no political rights. She, you know, she had no political organization. She just stepped up to the plate and said, this is what I'm going to do. So history is full of so many people who have done such extraordinary things with so few resources Mm -hmm. in environments that are so much more dire than ours. Mm -hmm. You know, think about it. We Americans, we do have freedom of speech. We do have the ability to inform ourselves about how these things are working. We have a political campaign that's going to lead to an election coming up. So we have all of these instruments those people didn't have. All we have to do is wake up and use them. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. I think uh, there's a, it's very scary to feel powerless. I, I feel it. I've been feeling it a lot recently, and I think that's why I've been pushing myself to research more. But there's almost a feeling when you discover just how much you were manipulated that you want to just give up and kind of go with the flow. But I'm fighting that because I know, I mean, we're so far from being in that dire of a situation, but I also know that people didn't expect that when that happened. So... I keep saying, like, if we are scared, we can stop it now. We don't need to wait for, you know, we should vote, but we don't need to wait for that moment. We can start now by talking to each other and understanding what's going on. Yeah, and there's so many interesting organizations that are springing up. Um, you know, I, I keep learning about them, but, you know, like like Indivisible and Swing Left have been around for a while. Yeah, what are some um, good yeah, ones we can going. trust? Or, I mean, I know we can never fully trust, but just, I've, I, I'm not very... Um, this is pretty new to me in terms of the world. So all these names I'm learning, I'm trying to discern what's credible. Are there any sort of names we should look out for that might be more credible? Well, in terms of organizations that are trying to, you know, organize citizens. Um, so Indivisible has chapters all over the country. Swing Left tries to organize people to look at campaigns in swing states and close races. There's a very interesting project that's getting some press these days of, of progressive evangelicals called the Poor People's Campaign. Oh, cool. And uh, the leader is Reverend Barber, who's an African-American minister, uh, a Methodist minister. So there's, there, there are various initiatives. And I think that it's, um, one thing you could do is just try to follow some of these groups on, on Twitter and see what they're about and see what's a good fit for your priorities. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that, uh, obviously for me, the environment and climate are huge, huge concerns. Um, and there's some very good work being done around that. The natural resources defense council has a lot going on. Um, obviously there's a lot to do about, in connection with the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that the street protests have been helpful in getting attention for the issues. Mm -hmm. But I think that there will have to be another stage mm -hmm. that deals with the really practical mechanics of government. And you don't do that with street protests. You do that with policy. And you do that by winning elections. Right. I mean, so it's kind of two-pronged, right? Cause... Entire... Oh, sorry. Pardon? No, no, I was going to... Sorry, I interrupted you. No, I was going to say it's really great to see this activism and now it's time to mature into the next phase and mm -hmm. to figure out how to be truly effective. 
Yeah, I think that's really well said. Like someone like me wouldn't have gotten this far in a conversation with you if I hadn't gone to the protest. So I just want to, from my point of view, say like the protests are really great in mobilizing people who don't feel political and haven't don't feel powerful because it gives you this sense of just how many people agree with you and want to change things. And then you're right. Then what is the next stage? I think then we need to feed that energy into actual policy change. Um, but I, yeah, I don't want to discount the protest because I think it's, it's made a lot of people, including myself, more active in this way. Um, I think sometimes there is a disconnect too, because I'm sort of in between. I grew up in the Silicon Valley and, you know, I, I love homework. So I've always been kind of a research person, but I'm in a comedy world where a lot of people can tune that out. So I'm kind of in between realizing you know, there's a lot of very good conversations being had on the intellectual level. And then there's just a lot of darkness outside of that. And I don't know if there's any way to sort of bridge that gap. That's sort of what I'm trying to figure out. But are there any like, I guess, what would be if you only had like, you know, a few minutes with someone who had no idea about this, like some facts that they need to know that you think I think most of the intellectuals and journalists know that people outside don't? Well, I think that, first of all, they need to get past their own blind spots. Mm -hmm. And I will often hear people here in New York say, oh, those fundamentalists, they're just stupid. They're just, and people, you know, they're just, they're just, you know, ignorant. And I have to respond that they're talking about the the friends and neighbors I grew up with. Mm -hmm. And no, I mean, it's it's not that, you know, like, by and large, they're, they're... far from stupid and often they make choices based on the information they're given by these organizations Mm -hmm. so within their media bubble they're making reasonable responses because they're not accessing the information that we have and the fact-based reporting uh, on the environment and everything else so the other thing about them is that they've been gradually liberalizing so if you look at the old guard of the fundamentalists in this movement, they're trying to roll back LGBTQ rights as fast as they can, and they understand that the next generation of fundamentalists are much more liberal Mm -hmm. in these terms than they are. So they have to work fast to nail down these laws and nail down these court appointments Mm. before the next generation takes over. So that's what's happening. The, the Trump administration and the Republican Senate have been bulldozing federal court appointments as fast as they can because yeah. if they lose the election, uh, they have to try to hold on to power through another branch of government. Right. So it really is an urgent situation. And then the third element is that it's not just a matter of being an activist. It's a matter of being strategic and smart and learning how the system works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said, I, I, I lived through El Salvador and the war. And you don't want social unrest to get too polarized mm-hmm. because it's ugly and lots of innocent people are hurt. I, I saw it with my own eyes. You want to work this out through the political system. And people get very cynical about politics and it's like, you know, oh, both parties are corrupt, this and that. We've seen a real difference between the two parties. It's a difference. Anybody who can read a page of text can <laughs> see that 
they're about different things. And if you're going to be cynical, you're just handing the entire thing over to the mm. radical right, and they will make sure that you live under their structures. And I predict yeah. that people won't like it. <laughs> right. And he keeps, I mean, not he, I say he because I'm looking at Trump as a figurehead, but as you explain, it's really not him. There's a very strong, more powerful network behind him. But they, they really push this idea of the silent majority. And I, I feel it's because they aren't the majority, but when they have power, then they can keep their power. So it's important to remember, like, as long as we inform each other and stay connected, we can become the majority. And we don't need to listen to this idea that, you know, the silent majority is more powerful if it doesn't exist. Absolutely. And I have to say that right now, one of the really critical groups of American citizens are the 18 to 30 year olds, Hmm. because they have a very low voting turnout. And that means that, that a lot of the mechanics of our society are handed over to this older generation that is not really representing their interests in a lot of cases. And I, I talk to people in this band, and they'll, I say, where do you get your news? And they'll say, Instagram. I'm like, really? <laughs> really? Because <laughs> you know? I'm on Instagram, and I, I can't get any news there. You need to inform yourself, even if it's just listening to one NPR news show in the car a day or whatever it is. Just get a sense of what's going on so that you do feel motivated to go and vote and represent yourself. And you do know how to talk to your friends and relatives in swing states and explain to them what's going on. And, you know, like, if, if this 18 to 30-year-old band doesn't become engaged and represent themselves in our democracy, it's their future that's going to be affected. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I'm, I've, I've got two offspring in that age band, mm-hmm. and, and I really care a lot about their future. Yeah, I mean, this kind of touches on one specific thing I wanted to bring up. This wasn't specifically in your book, but you talk about Hillsdale. And I found a campaign they promoted called the Save Our Youth campaign. And it just rang so, I mean, this is me playing off of my emotions, but it just felt so creepy, like very Hitler youth. The idea, they specifically call out the 1619 Project, and they say we shouldn't teach slavery in school. So it's very coded, but not well. I mean, it seems apparent that it's trying to um, promote teaching white children their sort of heritage. And it scared me a bit because it's being promoted and funded by this college that's so closely tied to the president. But I think they know what you're talking about, which is the youth are the future. And they're actually actively targeting the youth in I would say in ways that sound like almost cult brainwashing I mean you know when it comes to using different terms and the clandestine nature when I search their campaign it doesn't come up until I do a bit of digging it doesn't feel like it's just an activist thing you know if you look at Black Lives Matter it's right there and they put all their values there so whether you agree or not you can see what they're about this is a campaign that I had to do digging to find yeah, and I've looked at Hillsdale College's um, online offerings, and they have this whole course, which is basically trashing Franklin D. Roosevelt and the New Deal, and basically suggesting that it's like left-wing socialist communist thought. And you just kind of think about it and say, what if you told Americans you were going to eliminate Social Security tomorrow? 
how would people feel about that? Because that was part of the New Deal. How would you feel, hmm. you know, about any number of public health and uh, measures that were really the product of policies that were developed to help people, and not just the t- richest one percent, but not and, and you know the bottom fifty percent, and including the bottom ten percent. That that has been part of American life for a long time, mm-hmm. and I am not okay, and I don't think any person of faith should be okay with just saying, "Oh, people in the bottom ten percent of income should just go starve." You know, let their children just go die. I mean, mm-hmm. I just don't accept that. And if you don't use government as an instrument of policy to to represent all Americans, then you have a democracy that's failed. Is there any um, strategy to them putting... Because some of these uh, campaigns, they list socialism a lot as like this fear tactic for the right, but they often lump it with fascism and communism, which made me laugh as someone who knows the difference, but when I tried to take the other stance as someone who doesn't, it was very alarming because, you know, when people talk about social programs, they're not talking about fascism. It's quite the opposite. But a lot of the messaging on the right is saying the left wants to, you know, be fascist and socialist, which... I know, and they're just preying on people's lack of information. You know, they talk about Maduro in Venezuela, I know something about Maduro and Venezuela, and that is an authoritarian Mm -hmm. regime that's a kleptocracy. It's about stealing the resources of the country to enrich a man and his circle of followers. It's, it doesn't, you know, that, and there's a long tradition of it in Latin America under various governments, but it's, it's, it's not, it's not socialism or communism. Um, And, (laughs) You know, when you talk about communism, there have been a relatively few countries. As you say, communist China has been communist for, you know, however many years. Uh, uh, 70, I think. Soviet <laughs> Union, you know. Yeah. But then socialism is this very expansive term. Mm. And what it means in part of the world is that the people in Denmark have a government that invests in higher education. Mm-hmm. And my son lived there, and his girlfriend had free tuition through college, and then they decide that her getting a graduate degree was good for society, (laughs) so not only is the tuition paid, but they give a stipend to people in graduate school, right? Mm -hmm. Because they figure they'll be productive in the future. Now, that to me is just common sense, right? Yeah, France is socialist, and I studied abroad there, and they were protesting a tuition raise, and out of curiosity, I asked, because I was paying my full NYU tuition, which is, I don't want to say it, but I'm still paying the loans, but they, um, I was like, just out of curiosity, what are, you know, specifically, how much are they raising it by? And people were like, well, it used to be pretty much free, and now it's $200. I was like, oh, no, (laughs) we are so far behind, you guys. Absolutely, and I have these Canadian friends where for years... They're like, oh, well, we know American medicine is expensive, but it's getting expensive here, too. And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> like, yeah, it cost me $35 to go to the doctor last week. Oh, my God. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> wow. What can we do in ter- besides ta- like these broader ideas? Because I think you're totally right. We should talk to each other and, and be informed. But in terms of sometimes it feels so overwhelming is there a more like for someone who has no feels like they're not plugged in at all to anybody with influence is there anything 
we can do in our community? I mean, is it as simple as talking or are there, um, I guess part of me is wondering, like you talk about policy and I see these campaigns targeted at children. Like, is there some sort of legal route we can get people behind? Like, oh, a law where you can't target children with, uh, you know, false information or, I mean, am I just having a pie in the sky dream of taking down Hillsdale? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I, uh, Hillsdale is, is part of this organizational network, but I do think that, that really educating yourself about how the swing states work in the electoral college and then doing what you can on that is really important. Um, but I also, you know, I believe in act locally and, and trying to, to be an example mm-hmm. and, uh, and supporting public officials who are trying to do the right thing. Now, right now, it's, it's really uh, grave because there are all kinds of public officials who are trying to protect the population from the coronavirus. Yeah, wow. And I'll tell you, Teresa, here in New York City, it has been brutal. It has been oh, horrific. Man. And we were the first place in the United States where it really hit mm-hmm. hard. Yeah. Um, I, I just can't even describe to you what it was like here in April. Uh, and now the rest of the country needs to learn from our experience. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be that way. But public officials who are asking for masks and asking for distancing are getting pushback. Mm-hmm. Uh, the protests need to be masked and distanced. Some of them, many of them have been, but not all. Right. Uh, and then extend that to every part of our life. It's like with climate and the environment, be part of the solution. Rethink your habits. Rethink what you communicate to other people. All of this is really possible, and there are great, great organizations working on it. Um, and I think it. You know, sometimes you get a generation that's inspired. <laughs> and if you look at the New Deal, Americans stepped up to the plate and helped each other out in all kinds of ways. And that happens periodically. I sense a great potential for that over the next year if if things unfold well. You know, it yeah. could be a really great flowering of democracy. I think so. I think we're hitting this point where people who don't want um, fascism are realizing, oh, there we can do something about it. And I think that's what I kind of gleaned from your book, too, this idea of polarization. We need to stop thinking about um, politics as only two sides. Yes, there's a political party system where, you know, within that system we can win. But in terms of talking to people they don't always agree with the entire platform. And if you brush them off entirely, then you polarize them more. So I think about that when I talk to my parents. And my dad is a born-again Christian. And, you know, we have disagreements, but we talk a lot because he's my dad. And we have a lot of common interests. And he was telling me that within his church, when they spread misinformation, he says, like, when that feels wrong, I look it up. And then I try to say, hey, that's fake news. And I'm like so proud of him, but also it scares me that they're targeting my parents' communities who, you know, a lot of them really don't know. And and then we might not want to talk to our parents if they say one thing that we disagree with and then we push them further away. I think part of the challenge, you know, sometimes I talk to people who are members of various groups, whether it's African-American or, or immigrants or LGBT or women, and they're saying, you know, we just want to vent our rage. Mm. You know, we have so much pent-up rage. 
And I, I, I look at them very sympathetically because I understand why there's rage. But I also look at them and say, if you don't win elections, you're pushing your cause backwards. Mm-hmm. Because rage is often off-putting. People are alienated by rage, and especially people who are scared. And I think a lot of the voters in these swing states are, are confused and scared. And so these organizations give them this authority, and it's like, oh, it's, it's so because we say so, and you can trust this, and, you know, don't listen to that news mm. media because, you know, it's fake news, it's fake news, trust us, trust us. And it's, it's a question of being respectful and listening to the people you disagree with but also finding ways to present information to them that they will trust. So, you know, uh, the time is short, but we basically, you know, we know what to do. And Mm -hmm. it's a matter of building bridges, not walls. (laughs) It's a matter of saying, what are our common interests? Well, our health, our ability to breathe, everybody's everybody's interest to breathe. Our kids, our kids are a common interest. So, you know, how do we make that our conversation and dispel this web of, of, of lies and misrepresentation? Um, yeah, that's really well said. Okay, I, I know we're running out of time, but I have one one more tinfoil hat question. There is some weird ties to, like, uh, Putin apologists in Hillsdale media, and they have a newsletter. Like, you talk about this too, but I found the newsletter called Imprimus, which is free. Uh-huh. So that, you know, it's very much propaganda because they encourage people to sign up for it. It's free. They almost distribute it to people who don't want it. And I looked at some issues and there are a lot of ties to Russia, which to me could just be a a matter of, you know, policy. But you also talk about how this app developed for Ted Cruz was um, sort of tied to Russian tactics. Is there any validity in any third party or you know, foreign powers trying to break up the country or are we, or is that me being paranoid as someone who's kind of ill-informed? Well, let's put it this way. When I was researching Shadow Network, I kept tripping over connections to Russia, you know, every chapter. There'd be another <sighs> connection. And one of the architects of the Council for National Policy, Paul Weirich, started commuting to Russia mm-hmm. after 1989 and the end of the Soviet Union. And there were all of these personal connections, these people who show up. Uh, one of the leads I found was that the National Rifle Association, which is run by a member of the Council for National Policy, was very close to Maria Butina, the Russian agent mm. who was convicted. And the NRA paid offered to pay her way to a Council for National Policy meeting, right? So that is what you call in the journalism trade a smoking gun. Mm. There are other ties where you've got the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, which is generating all kinds of crazy right-wing memes. They're all over social media. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of the stuff on Instagram is really... uh, awful and, uh, I mean, Mm -hmm. sick-making. And some of these memes have been used by the organizations that I write about. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not a smoking gun. Anybody can take a meme anywhere and repost it, right? Mm -hmm. So at a certain point, I just had to (laughs) kind of weep a little and say, my book's about the United States. Uh Somebody else is going to have to write the book on Russia. (laughs) 
That's a yeah. That's cleverly put in in a way that uh, is uh, keeps you in, in the neutral ground. I, as a comedian, will say that when we fight each other as Americans, just consider a possibility that someone outside wants America to fall. So it's not about beating up your neighbor over your identity politics, but consider if there is a third party involved or two. I mean, China's got interest too. That they may want you to fight is, I guess. That's my little tinfoil hat notion, but, you know, take that with a grain take of salt. Take off the tinfoil hat, <laughs> Teresa. There are plenty, there's plenty of evidence that, that the Russians are very pleased and supportive of these efforts. Uh-huh. But in terms of nailing down the kind of evidence that I have to have for my kind of writing, mm. I just didn't have the bandwidth to do that in the time allowed. And I don't speak Russian, so that's a limitation, <laughs> too. Um, yeah, and you really do get into so much information, so people should definitely check out that book. Um, for comedians who aren't in this world at all, um, how would I get someone to click on this book if it was an article, if that makes sense? Yeah, but I could also say that I update the research in the book constantly on my Twitter feed, mm. which is at A. Nelsona, A. Nelson A., so that's one way to get the short take. And then I also have some videos up on YouTube from talks from C-SPAN and the Richard French show. So there are, you know, there are different versions uh, and ways to get. Yes, definitely follow Anne. That's how I found her. Um, yeah, follow Anne. Yay. And I'm going to give the sensational version. You can, you can veto this. But I would say, like, to me, when I read this book, if I'm pushing, I'd be like, you got to read this. This is just, I, I mean... The radical right co-opted Christianity is one way I might put it. And even that sounds really heavy. I don't know if there's a more BuzzFeed version, maybe because it is it is true and so serious. But if you guys need a um, need any proof, she really outlines it with all of the facts. But don't don't say co-opted Christianity. Okay. You know, there's a whole world called the red letter Christians. Mm. And what they do is go back to the words of Jesus in the New Testament printed in red letters. And what, what you know, if you go to the Sermon on the Mount, it's, you know, blessed, <laughs> blessed are the poor, blessed, it's blessed, blessed. And let the little, you know, yes. it was all about uh, embracing everyone. So, but don't you think that they they took it? Don't you think that I guess I probably misspoke when I say co-opted. I meant that they're misappropriating. Maybe is the better word that it's not actually well, Christianity behind all of these policies, but that there was some partnership that forced the hand of what we hear. Yeah, and they used some some factions within the world, the, the big and varied world of Christianity, and and created a partnership with some of them and used them. And I think that ultimately it's all about money. It's all about greedy people mm-hmm. using others. And it's also about the, the people on the bottom were also manipulated, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at is they, they even people who say hateful things to me, you know, I mean... I'm in the coastal city, but online or whatever, uh, it's so easy to write them off as bigoted. But then when I read this book, I realized a lot of them were manipulated as well with their fears and their insecurities. That's right. 
And I mean, come on, for any of us, if, if somebody convinced you that somebody wanted to murder millions of babies, you say that's yeah. awful, <laughs> right? But you need to have accurate sources of information available to, to tell you the facts. So yeah. that's, you know, we just have a big job ahead of us as a society, but it's doable. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Okay, so please do read this book. I feel like we kind of covered um, most of the um, the overall, but there's so much more below this. And I would say if you have any suspicion that like something shady is going on, you're right, and you'll find the evidence <laughs> in this book. Yeah, maybe that's maybe that's the better clickbait title is your conspiracy theories are true. Keep reading. <laughs> Keep reading and then engage. Mm -hmm. um, Respond. Thank you so much, Anne. Um, this was, I mean, very informative. I know I asked some very basic questions that I'm sure you you uh, you have said over and over, but I think for people who've never come into this stuff, I think it was very helpful. Thanks so much, Teresa. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, is there anything else we can look out for for you coming out? I mean, I know you just came out this book, but anything you want to promote outside of that? Oh, I just posted an article from the Daily Beast about the Trump 2020 app, which is a lot of fun, and it's the way it tracks people. And uh, so, if they want that, I posted that on Twitter, and you can find it on the Daily Beast. And I'm just going to keep researching, and as you put it, trying to be a truth teller until <laughs> until I can't anymore. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'll post your um, handle as well to my followers. Then. Thanks so much, Anne. Perfect.